Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 613, February 28th, 2011. It's a Monday. It's also the last day of the month. Um, it's 2011, and two months are gone. I'll give it to you that February is a short month, but... Um, There's only 10 months left in a year. Time marches on. Are you increasing your liberty, your freedom, your independence on a daily basis? Or are you increasing your slavery and your servitude and your blindness on a daily basis? The choice is yours. I imagine if you're tuning into this show and other shows like mine, uh, you are on the sliding scale toward liberty. Just remember, you're always on that scale. And if you stop taking actions on any given day, you slide a little bit back. Don't allow that to happen. Do one thing every day to increase your liberty and independence. So it's Monday, and that means we're going to do a listener feedback show, right? But it's going to be a different listener feedback show. First time we've ever done this, doing a themed listener feedback show. Uh, I put out a video over the weekend. I actually put out three, but one was on genetically modified seeds and seed banks and hybrids and all kinds of good stuff like that. It was actually a review of a seed bank that Jeff from Directive 21 uh, offers, and uh, but it was really more an informational uh, review. I try to make my reviews as informational as I can. And it brought up a lot of questions. I've got more questions, I think, than I gave out answers. So I'm going to do two days of shows in two different ways. Today's show is going to be all your feedback, recent feedback, and a little bit of digging into the archives to make some points about genetically modified foods and how they are a threat to our food system and why you need to be aware and why you need to be concerned about them and why you need to be doing something to protect yourself from them and not just accepting that the food supply is completely and totally safe in spite of recent regulations that claim to make it safer than ever before. And then tomorrow we're going to talk about saving seeds and seed banks on maybe a different level than we have in the past. Because I know there's a lot of questions there just by the feedback I'm getting. So, uh, it is a feedback show, just all on one thing. That means if you have said something in the last couple of weeks, you might hear it next week. And as always, if you want to be on a show like this, you can send an email to question, uh, send the email to jack at the survivalpodcast.com and put question for Jack in the subject line. That'll at least make sure it gets screened as a potential show, uh, something that's potentially going to go on the show. Don't use that as a trick to get me to read your personal email. You're better off sending your personal email just to me with a normal subject line. Uh, just a little tip there. Uh, before we get into today's show, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today, Ready-Made Resources. What more can you ask from a company than for them to say, this is our name, and our name says what we do, and then we're going to do it, and we're going to do it every daggone time, and we're going to do it right. And that's what Ready-Made Resources does. They take all the resources you need, put them together ready-made for your prepping, and ship them out to you when you order them, and make sure you get them, and if something goes wrong, they make it right. That's what it takes to be and stay a sponsor on the Survival Podcast. And at Ready-Made Resources, you'll find everything you need from long-term storage food to an extensive array of uh, solar and wind products, 
12 volt products, gardening products, self defense products, home security products, emergency survival products, camping products. You get it. Everything that the prepper could possibly be looking for, you'll find at Ready Made Resources. Ready to go. All right, next up today is MERS Radio, and that's actually M U R S hyphen, a little dash there, and then the word radio in a dot com. And that's Rom over there, and I mean, he has been around for a long time. Uh, on the internet. Started out a long time ago with the Yahoo group on communications. Put this company together and decided instead of having like 4,000 different radios, he'd have specific gear for a specific application and absolutely master every feature and function on that equipment so that not only could he sell a great product, but when his customers called him up and said, I'm trying to do this or I'm trying to do that, he could stone cold give them the answers that they're looking for. And that's what he's been able to do, and that's why I'm such a big fan of MERS Radio. I'm also a big fan of, of Rob and his company because the equipment's awesome. What MERS really is is a secondary means of communication. It doesn't have a huge range. We're talking under normal circumstances one to two miles. There's ways you can extend that, but just say for day-to-day -day purposes one to two miles. Covering the homestead, so to speak. But integrated with the communications are motion detectors that add security functionality to your communication system. So imagine setting up, you know, a group of listening posts, observation posts, where somebody would call you and say, hey, something's going on in zone one. Now, it's not really a person, so it can't tell you what's going on, but there's been movement there. Something you may need to address. It could be, you know, like in the front door, it could be someone plop, plop, uh, prowling around at night, or just on a gate, it could be your animals or livestock trying to escape. Either way, it's a great thing to be able to integrate those two things together. That's why I love MERS Radio. Uh, next up, I want to remind you, make sure you're connecting with us on YouTube. I need as many YouTube subscribers as I can get. I'm starting to get a lot of gear manufacturers sending me stuff. And uh, I'll tell you what, I'm getting so much of a surplus, there's something in it for you. What I'm going to start doing, once we get moved and all this crap out from underneath us, um, I'm going to get more gear than I can use. Believe it or not, that's going to happen because it keeps coming. So what I'm going to do is uh, you're going to have to be a YouTube subscriber to uh, participate in this. I will uh, do kind of contests for the YouTube subscribers, and whatever gear uh, is surplus, I'll ship it to the YouTube subscriber that, that wins however we're in the contest, but uh, you'll pay the shipping. So whatever it costs me, because, I mean, it could get expensive. There's so much stuff and so many inquiries now. People want me to do gear reviews. And once we're at the bug out location permanently, I'm going to be really set up to do that. Uh, so... Help me out. Join my YouTube channel as a subscriber. Comment, you know, give me thumbs up, do good stuff like that. And as I end up with surplus gear, I'll give it back to the YouTube subscriber list. How cool is that? I don't know anybody else, anybody else doing that on YouTube. Uh, my wife and I were talking about selling the surplus, and I decided it's too much work for too little money. I'd rather just give it back to the audience. Uh, I'm not going to tell you I'm going to give you back everything that's sent in to me. Some of this stuff is some cool stuff. Uh, but how many emergency radios does one guy need? You know, how many, how many bags can one person use? That type of thing. So, as I get surplus, I'll give it back. Uh, last but not least, I want to remind you guys that, uh, we are doing a sale on the member support brigade. $30 for the first year. That means, uh, for $30 bucks for your first year. That means $20 off your first year. If you look at something like the, uh, Safe Castle Royal discount membership at $29 value, you get that for free. Basically, it costs you a buck. That sale expires today at midnight. It will not work after midnight central standard time. Okay? So if you want that sale, do it now. Use discount code positive on sign up. If you're mailing your payment in by check money order, I will take the discount code that way. Just write it on the form. Make sure it's postmarked today. Um, I'm going to tell you this right now. There will be sales in the future. There will not be another $30 sale for at least four months. 
at least, if not, if the, maybe not this year. Um, you know, if I do a sale in the future, it's not going to be quite so generous. This is a huge discount, uh, not something I can do all the time. Okay, so let's get into the main topic of today's show, and let's talk about why I'm doing it. Um, I got this email from a guy named Cam, and it's, I don't think it's Cam Matter because the email address. Well, first of all, I don't think Cam had even asked the question. Uh, not that Cam, but uh, but this Cam says to me. The question is about how GMO agricultural products might harm people consuming it. I'm not asking about contamination on food as the result of Roundup Ready corn, but the substance of the uncontaminated food itself. If one to perform a chemical analysis, is a GMO and a non-GMO product physically different? Is GMO fructose chemically different from non-GMO fructose? Perhaps answering a different question might help me understand this as well. How does artificial manipulation of corn differ from natural breeding of corn? Oh, awesome question. And how does it result in being an inherently different chemical that is potentially harmful to us? My point isn't to defend GMO practices and certainly not scheming using GMO products, but to understand the physical chemical differences between the substance we eat. And I think it's an awesome question, even though I'm going to throw in, if the corn was safe and the chemical that was sprayed on the corn was the problem, does it really matter? In other words, when we make something like Roundup Ready Soy, the only reason we do the genetic modification is so we can spray Roundup on it. So, or, the, you know, when we use corn and we make it resistant to a herbicide like atrazine, which you're going to hear about more in a bit, um, the only reason we modify it that way is so that we can spray atrazine on it. But let's answer some of the deeper questions, and then we're going to start going through... I got a lot of stuff this last couple of weeks on GMO, so this all comes from the listeners until we get to the last one, which is one I looked up. I've even got uh, a lady who is an oncologist, been treating breast cancer for years, dealt with breast cancer herself. Somebody sent me in a, an interview by her from a radio show called Fresh Air. Yes, Fresh Air. And it kind of reminds me when they start out, like uh, if you've ever seen Saturday Night Live and those, those, those two ladies that are on like a public radio thing, they're like, good times. Yeah, neat. And they bring, uh, I think, uh, what's his name? Uh, one of the uh, uh, Baldwin b brothers has been on there a couple times with his uh, sweaty balls, which are these, uh, they call him Shvetty is his last name, and they're like a chocolate ball. And a big joke about it. But if you've seen that, you know, uh, then, then this is kind of like, it sounds like this kind of show. Uh, but when you get into the meat of the interview and this lady that's dealt with this herself, And you hear what she has to say, I think it'll be really impactful. So that's coming up later in the broadcast today. Uh, but let's start out with, let's look at, is a genetically modified corn or genetically modified anything different chemically than a, a, a hybrid? So how is it different if I take a corn and I put a gene in it to make it resistant to atrazine? Or I take a soy and I put a gene in it to make it resistant to Roundup. Or I take a corn and I put a gene into it to make it resistant to, let's say, um, corn borers. So there is uh, a, a bacteria called bacteri bacterial thungosis. I can never say this right. BT. All right. BT is short for this bacteria. And this is actually approved for organic gardening, by the way. So, uh, And you can spray this on corn. And if corn borer gets a little bit of this into its system, it's a bacteria that kills corn borers. It's supposed to be safe for you. Now, whether or not that should be okay for organic gardening, we can let that go. All right? We let that go for now. But what we do know is that corn doesn't produce BT. And it never has produced BT. And it's one of the most ancient crops 
that human beings have ever cultivated. There's almost nothing that goes back in, as far in human uh, agriculture as the interbreeding, crossbreeding, hybridization, and development of corn. Because corn was just a grass, and the original corn looked nothing like it did today. And there's a lot of work. And tomorrow's show will go into how this work gets done, that's been done with successive... So, in, in thousands of years of working with corn, corn has never developed this trait of producing BT or being resistant to atrazine. And soybeans have never developed this trait of being resistant to something like Roundup. So you, you have to stop and think and go, well, how do they do this? And this is where we go into, is it chemically different? Chemically, I, I'm not a chemist, and I'm not a scientist, and I don't claim to be. But... Um, I don't know if you would call it a chemical difference, but how about this? How about maybe what to me trumps it all? It's biologically different. It's genetically different. And, and the problem is that the gene that's being put into the plant to cause this resistance is not only not natural, it doesn't come from another plant. In some cases, it comes from a fish. So we take a fish's gene and we slice it into a corn's gene or into a cotton gene or something like that. And then we have to stop and we have to ask ourselves, well, how do we do this? Because I can't just take, like, grind up a fish into, like, fish paste, right, and, and, and rub it on the corn and plant it in the ground. Actually, that would probably work really good because I would provide a high nitrogen source for the corn. But no matter what I do, I cannot make a fish and a corn interbreed. You know, I can't put the corn in a in a bed, you know, like the fish make a bed to, to spawn in, and have the, the, the fish spawn on top of the corn and get some of the genetics of the fish into the corn. It, it doesn't work. So how the hell do you get the gene from a corn into a, or a fish into a corn? This is the interesting part. You, you might think that some guy in a little white coat has a super microscope and actually goes in there and takes out a couple spots of the genetic code of the, the corn that's not necessary and then places these genes in there with some kind of little microscopic tool. Well, human beings can't do this. We don't have the ability to, to operate at that level of the microscopic world. We can't do genetic surgery. So we need something that can invade at that microcellular level and do a job. So what invades cells and can take something from itself and transmit it into the cell. A virus. So the way that this modification is done is they take a virus and they, they, they in, imprint this, this genetic code into the virus. They basically build a virus from the gene. And then the virus infects the, the, the corn DNA and it, it transmits this gene into the DNA. They infect it with a foreign gene. It's like a genetic transmitting virus. In fact, that's exactly what it is. So that's how they get it in there. So that alone should make you go, I don't know if we should be screwing around with this. I mean, haven't we all seen that movie? That's like one of my favorite catchphrases. And I think Dodge ripped me off because they're using it now. 
they, they, they have this commercial out where this, you know, the, the car was driven by the internet or whatever. And we, and, you know, they're like, haven't we seen that movie? That ends with human beings being used as batteries by supercomputers. And, you know, maybe they'd rip me off for real. I'm, I'm kidding there. You know, maybe I should trademark that. You know, like the, you know, let it go. Um, but, you know, haven't we all seen this movie where we play with things at this level? So that's how we get it in there. Now we have this thing existing in the biosphere that's not supposed to exist. The natural genetic mutations, the natural sequencing, the natural process of hybridization and reproduction and the best making it and the, the worst falling to the side and working, all of those things can never produce this thing. God nor man can make this thing without using a virus to infect the cell. So there's some worries that I have um, to begin with as well. But coming in from Mike, Mike sent me an email. Well, this is old story, this this link here. Uh, and it's actually an old email from Mike. I had to, like I said, dig through the archives to find this one. But let's say we take away the, the, the atrazine or the Roundup or, or whatever, and we just look at the genetic predisposition of the corn. So this is on change.org. And I'll read this article to you because it's not very long. Is Monsanto's corn destroying your internal organs by Cameron Scott? This was published on July 8th, 2010. So this is uh, over a year old now. Yes, this is another story about Monsanto, the controversy-prone American agriculture giant that, according to Greenpeace, sells 90% of the world's genetically modified seeds. The company's dominance is such that even U.S. Department of Justice is investigating it for possible antitrust practices. But the government has been a willing partner in marketing GMO crops, repeatedly refusing to require GMO foods to be labeled as the European Union does. You know all those bureaucrats, folks, this is my commentary for a second, that, that, that say like, but Europe this, and Europe that, and Europe this. Well, apparently Europe that doesn't matter when it's like protecting your citizens from food that might be infected. See, the labeling issue is a big problem for me. If you want to put this stuff out there, people want to eat it, I'm a libertarian, fine. I should know when I pick up a box of something, is there GMO in there? Sadly, in the United States today, if it's in a box, the answer is probably yes. But I still think this stuff should be labeled. In fact, the objection to why they can't label it is, it would be too complicated because it's in everything. Well, fine. Then you label everything as GMO and let and then let manufacturers decide if they want to keep it out, and then they can label it non-GMO. All right. Um and signing off on their alleged safety. Back to the article here. Funny thing about that, there's hardly any research to back it up. The government has, hasn't funded it, and independent researchers can't get a hold of the patented seeds. What studies there are don't look good. One Australian report suggests the GMO corn made by Monsanto causes significant fertility problems in mice, and by implication possibly humans. And a new study, which has, has to resort to analyzing data sets produced by studies conducted by Monsanto and other biotech firms. So this study uses the data that came out of Monsanto itself. Uh, Covenants Laboratories, and submitted to European governments because researchers couldn't get seeds, has found that Monsanto corn impairs rats, kidneys, and livers. The data strongly suggests that after just 90 days of eating GM corn, rats experienced kidney toxicity and showed effects to their hearts, adrenal glands, spleen, and blood cells. The study was published in the International Journal of Biological Sciences. Again, my commentary. This is from Monsanto's own data. Data they had to provide the European Union to try to get their crap into Europe. 
Okay, back to the article. The authors explained that their analysis of data differed from Monsanto's because the company overlooked different reactions in male and female rats. The ag giant continues to maintain that GMO corn is safe. What happened to hu- so what happens to humans that eat GM corn products as well as animals who've been fed GM corn? That's a damn good question, and one the U.S. government ought to answer before waving these products into the food supply. And if you think that's just because humans and livestock aren't dropping dead on the spot, GMOs must be fine. Read this very same analysis. So I, I'll have links to all this stuff to you. Take action. Get the FDA to suspend approval of Monsanto's GMO corn. Okay, so there's just one study that says, okay, we've looked at this. Now, I want to be totally fair and impartial today. So here's another report on the same study. And uh, this is from businessinsider.com, which may be a little less one-sided in its opinion um, than someone like uh, change.org. So this is reporting the same study, and it says, Study finds genetically modified corn causing organs damage to rats. I want to read you one part of it that goes back to our original question here and uh, kind of, you know, look at a different angle on this. Like, what might have caused these, this damage? Uh, this is from the Journal of Biological Sciences out of the second article that I'll link to for you. We therefore conclude that our data strongly suggests that GM maize varieties induce a state of hepato- hep- some word toxicity. This can be to new pesticides, this can be to new pesticides, herbicide or insecticide present, present specifically in each type of GM maize. Although unintended metabolic effects due to mutant properties of GM transformation process cannot be excluded. All three GM maize varieties contain a distinctively different pesticide residue associated with particular GM event, uh, glyphosate, AMP, AMPA, and NK603, modified CRY1AB, and MON810, modified CRY3BB1 in MON863. That sounds like good, yummy stuff to be eating, doesn't it? Uh, these substances have never before been an integral part of the human or animal diet, and therefore their health consequences for those who consume them, especially over long periods of time, are currently unknown. In conclusion, our data presented here strongly recommends additional long-term of the two-year animal feeding studies be performed in at least three species, preferably also multi-generational to provide true scientifically valid data on the acute chronic toxic effects of GM crops, feed, and foods. So what I wanted to read that to you and explain to you here is that when this study came out, there were billions of bloggers saying, See? See? Monsanto's killing us with GM corn. And the actual study said, Well, we don't really know what's killing us. But something's killing something. And it could be the mutation. It could be the pesticide. What I find interesting is the the results of the rats having liver and kidney failure were fairly uniform from three different varieties of corn. And these three different varieties of corn were modified uh, and were receiving different pesticides and herbicides. So either all the pesticides and herbicide residue caused the same result in the rats... Or the more thing, if we look at Occam's razor, right, the simplest solution is usually the answer. Um, the common link is actually the GMO corn. But I'm going to go back to something I said earlier. Does it really matter? Does it really matter if the genetic mutation of the crop is what's going to cause your liver to fail? Or the spray they spray on the corn or whatever food substance um, after... They do the mutation. In fact, I would submit to you, and I want you to think about this in a totally new way. Let's say 
that these genetic mutations in, in these seeds are completely safe for human beings. It's, a, it's okay to take a virus and splice a gene in and infect a DNA uh, strand with a virus. It's okay. It won't hurt you in any way. I'm not saying it really would. I'm going to say let's suspend all doubt and just for a minute just accept the fact that maybe it is. I would submit to you that that may actually be worse. It may actually be worse. And here's why. If the genetic modification is the problem, some GMOs may be worse than others. Okay, Some GMOs may not cause any problems. Some GMOs might cause very severe problems, and many GMOs might cause moderate problems, if GMO is the problem in itself. If modifying the food to be sprayed with toxins it means that the toxins are the problem, then we get uniform infection of the food supply from one end to the other. doesn't matter how bad or how safe the GMO modification is, as long as we're modifying these substances to be sprayed with herbs and pesticides, then we're actually increasing the amount of pesticide and herbicide going into the food supply and therefore our cells, and therefore, therefore the organ damage goes up exponentially. So even if the, the, the food's safe, and I don't believe that it is, and, and here's the thing, what, what I think we really have here is we have a genetically modified food that we don't know what its long-term consequences is on the human body. And we have things like atrazine. And we have things like um, Roundup. And we have things like um, glyphosate and, and AMPA in NK603, whatever the hell that is. And we have these things, see, in the past. This is the big thing that I think gets missed with GMOs. And I'm glad, I'm glad that Cam asked the question because it makes us go deeper into the problem and see not, well, the food's safe, but the food might not be safe and this definitely isn't safe. When you grew a soybean in the past, you could only use a herbicide so long before you planted to kind of clean out the field, and then you could maybe spray around your borders, and that might have some water wash into the, and it wasn't good, but, you know, if you use too much of an herbicide, the soybeans itself died, and no farmer would kill their own crop intentionally. So that limited the herbicide. And pesticides sometimes have a detrimental effect on the growth rate of a plant. So now we take the plant and we, we modify it so that we can spray it at will, And we literally saturate the entire field while the plant is growing. And into the plant through uh, absorption and into the plant from you know the plant taking up uh, irrigation through the root system and into the plant go the toxin. And then the toxin, you know, because now, now we don't just spray it once. Well, my God, I mean, the, the, the soybeans, the canola, the corn, whatever, can handle it. So it's it's just barely started, and we spray it to give it a head start. And now it gets up to about, you know, uh, hip high. Well, hell, there's some weeds starting to, they're, they're starting to adapt to this roundup. Just spray it again. And then maybe we spray it one more time. And this is biodegradable on a label, so it must be okay. And then we eat that. So I want to know how anybody could think that's safe. I, I, I just I just don't understand how anybody can think that's safe. Now going on to and I want to be clear, my TFH radar is going off. For those of you who don't know what TFH radar is, that stands for tinfoil hat radar. I don't know if what I'm about to read to you is credible or not, and I'm giving you that disclosure and I'm challenging the audience to prove or disprove 
the, vol- the validity of this claim, the person making the claim, the person that is the source on the claim, and is there anything behind the claim that substantiates it? Just because the, you know, if the guy that wrote the letter is legitimate, it doesn't, it doesn't substantiate the claim, but this is something to look at. So, this is on Farm and Ranch Freedom Alliance, uh, which is at farmandranchfreedom.org, and it says researcher says Roundup or Roundup-ready crops may be causing animal miscarriages and infertility. Let me read part of this to you. One of the nation's senior scientists alerted the federal government to a newly discovered organism that may have the potential to cause infertility and spontaneous abortion in farm animals, raising significant concerns about human health. Dr. Don Huber, professor emeritus at Purdue University, believes the appearance and prevalence of an unnamed organism may be related to the nation's over-reliance on a weed killer known as Roundup and or something about the genetically modified Roundup-ready crops. In a letter to the Secretary of Agriculture, Tom Visalik, the professor called on the federal government to immediately stop deregulation of Roundup Ready crops, particularly Roundup Ready alfalfa. Blows the full text of the letter, and uh, let me read just some parts of it to you. A team of senior plant and animal scientists have recently brought to my attention the discovery of an electron microscopic pathogen that appears to be to significantly impact the health of plants, animals, and probably human beings. Based on a review of the data, it is widespread, very serious, and in much higher concentrations in Roundup Ready uh, soybeans and corn, suggesting a link with the Roundup Ready gene, or more likely the presence of Roundup. This organism appears to be new to science. This is a highly sensitive information that could result in the collapse of U.S. and soy export markets and significant disruption of the domestic food and feed supplies. That one line is a big part of my tinfoil hat radar. Uh, I, I, I don't know that this one guy could send a letter like this and, and really have that impact or believe that he would. So I, I don't know on this. On the other hand, back to the letter, on the other hand, this new organism may already be responsible for significant harm. See below. My colleagues and I are therefore moving our investigation forward with speed and discretion and seek assistance from the USDA and other entities to identify the passage source, prevalence, and implications, and remedies. Uh, let me read some parts of it. I'm skipping down now. Unique physical properties. This previously unknown organism is only visible under an electron microscope at 36,000 uh, magnification with an approximate size range equal to a medium-sized virus. It is able to reproduce and appears to be microfungal-like organism. If so, it would be the first such microfungus ever identified. There is strong evidence that this infectious agent promotes diseases of both plants and mammals, which is very rare. Again, TFH radar going off, but I can't rule it out. Pathogenic location and concentration is found in high concentration around the British soybean meal and corn. Distillers meal, fermentation feed products, pig stomach contacts, and pig and cattle placentas. Linked with outbreaks of plant disease, the organism is prolific in plants infected with two pervasive diseases that are dying down yields and farmer income. Sudden death syndrome in soy and gross wilt in corn. The pathogen is also found in the fungal causative agent of SDS, which is Fusorium solophthalicines or something like that. And, and, and Fusorium, that sounds to me like something that's been linked to colony collapse disorder as well in the bee world. If I'm wrong about that, you guys can let me know. Implicated animal reproductive failure. Laboratory tests have confirmed the presence of this organism in a wide variety of livestock have experienced spontaneous abortions and infertility. Preliminary results from ongoing research have been able to reproduce abortions in clinical settings. The pathogen may explain escalating frequency of infertility 
infertility and spontaneous abortions over the past few years in U.S. cattle, dairy, swine, and horse operations. These include recent reports of infertility rates in dairy heifers of over 20%. Can anybody confirm that one for me? See, some of the stuff in here, I just think if our cattle were having infertility at 20%, we would have heard about. And spontaneous abortions in cattle is as high as 45%. Again, I, I don't really know. So what does he think we should do about this? Um, in summary, because of the high tier of this new animal pathogen around the birdie crops and its association with plant and animal diseases that are reaching epidemic proportions, we request USDA's participation multi-agency investigation and immediate moratorium on the deregulation of Roundup Ready crops until uh, casual predisposing relationship with glyphosate and or RR Ready plants can be ruled out in the threat of crop to animal reproduction and health. It is urgent to examine whether the side effects of glyphosate, remember this word, he said it over and over and over and over again, glyphosate, I want you to remember that word, uh, use may have facilitated the growth of this pathogen or allowed it to cause greater harm to a weakened plant and animal host. It is well documented that glyphosate promotes soil pathogens and is already implicated in the increase of more than 40 plant diseases. It dismantles plant defenses by chelating vital nutrients and reduces the bioavailability of nutrients and feed, which in turn can cause animal disorders. To properly evaluate these factors, we request access to the relevant USDA data. I have supplied plant, I have studied plant pathogens for more than 50 years. We are now seeing an unprecedented trend in increasing plant and animal diseases and disorders. This pathogen may be instrumental in understanding and solving the problem. It deserves the immediate attention with significant resources to avoid a general collapse of our critical agricultural infrastructure. Sincerely, Colonel, retired, Don M. Huber, Emeritus Professor of Purdue University, AP, APS Coordinator, USDA, National Plant Disease recovery systems um, here's the thing though um, you notice this is why I'm skeptical here this guy says that they're doing this with discretion and then in the introduction the blogger says or the reporter says however you want to call it below is the full text of the letter F. ARFA received an electronic copy of the letter from Dr. Huber, and we have spoken with him directly to confirm its authenticity. How, how are you being discretionary and with discretion, and how are you concerned if you're leaking the same letter out? So I'd like to know, does Dr. Huber even, Don M. Huber, does he even exist? And did he write this letter? And is there any substantiation behind this letter? I'm not really sure, but I did think it would be worth sharing with you the fact that we do have at least a source here uh, that seems to say that not only can this stuff cause liver and kidney failure, but possibly infertility and spontaneous uh, natural, I wouldn't say natural, but spontaneous uh, abortion, which I would, see it's another thing that makes my TFH radar go off. I wouldn't call it an abortion. I'll call it a miscarriage. An abortion to me is induced, so maybe it, it I don't know. I, maybe the language is wrong. Uh, I don't know, but hey, you guys help me check this one out. I got a lot of stuff to do on a daily basis. I want to know, is this legit or is it BS? But if it's legit, man, we got another thing to worry about here. And it, it does it surprise you that if a female was consuming large amounts of something like atrazine during a pregnancy that it could be bad for, for her pregnancy? I mean, generally speaking, women, once they're pregnant, don't even have a glass of wine. 
So if an ounce of alcohol would be that bad for, for, for a fetus, what about something like atrazine or Roundup? Or the, this pathogen that may or may not exist. Again, I don't know if this is a legitimate report. Uh, I'm reporting you decide in the words of Fox News on this one. Let's take a look at something else though sent to me. This comes from Sam and it is the, uh, it's the, the, uh, the interview with the oncologist that I've been speaking of. Let me read to you his email. And then I'm going to, instead of reading the transcript, I'm going to actually play a few minutes of the interview for you so you can hear uh, this lady in her own words. Um, Sam says, Hi, hey Jack, surprising news, Monsanto is evil. I was listening to an interview with an author-oncologist on NPR. Oh, NPR, no wonder it sounds like it's an NPR interview. It's NPR. I didn't even realize that. Um, that's what I was saying earlier about it. it sounded like it came from uh, that public radio thing on uh, they make fun of on Silent Live. Suddenly she shifts into Jack Spierko mode and is talking about Roundup and GMO. She was explaining why breast cancer rates have increased so much. Part of her answer uh, with the link at the end, you have to expand to see the transcript. And instead of me reading it to you, let me just play for you a portion of this interview. I think you'll find it quite enlightening. So one of the things you're concerned about is not exposing yourself to environmental hazards and to certain you know, products that you think can have an estrogen-like effect in your body. And you're in the process of writing a book about environmental issues that might increase risk of breast cancer or breast cancer recurrence. So let's run through some of your specific concerns about that. I don't know if you, if you want to start with food. Well, let me just say that breast cancer used to be pretty uncommon about 100 years ago. And what's happened is that the breast has become the favorite place for cancer to occur in this day and age. And, and we all know people, I think I can say this and speak for everybody, see, we all know people who have had breast cancer. So what are some of the explanations of why the breast has become the favorite location for cancer? Well, most people think it's all about family history and genes you may have inherited from your family. But actually, the breast cancer genes only explain 5 to 10% of breast cancer cases today. And those are ancient, stable abnormalities. They haven't changed. But what has changed over the years that explains why the breast has become the favorite place for cancer to occur are changes in our outside environment and our body's inside environment. So in terms of the inside environment with obesity, making extra inside hormones that can influence breast cell growth, it also triggers more insulin growth factor. Um, more women are drinking alcohol. More women have, stop, have not stopped smoking. They've started, but they haven't stopped as quickly as men have. We um, lead very stressful lives. We don't sleep enough. We're running ourselves ragged. We're not giving our bodies a chance to um, heal from the wear and tear of everyday living. From the outside environment, we bring into our uh, body's inside environment what were um, the food. For example, uh, the most commonly grown crops today, corn and soy, are grown with atrazine and Roundup. Um, atrazine can turn on. What is own- atrazine? Atrazine is a herbicide, is a weed killer that's used to grow corn. Roundup is a weed killer used to grow soy. Those seeds are genetically modified to a, to grow in the presence of those chemicals. But we haven't been genetically modified to um, to withstand the side effects of atrazine and Roundup. Atrazine can stimulate the production of estrogen in your body by turning on the, the aromatase enzyme. And Roundup is a hormone disruptor. It can kind of rock the boat and mess up the balances of hormones in your body. But all these chemicals, uh, you know, they are used in 
agriculture or industry. Um, they can get into the food that we eat, the water we drink, and they can have an influence, an unhealthy influence on our breast cells. Uh, why breast cells and why not uh, different parts of the body? Well, actually, the breast is a very unique organ. Um, it is the only organ to fully, f- essentially fully form after you've been born. All the other organs, including the very beginning of the breast uh, tissue, is formed during the first three months of pregnancy. Um, and during that time, of course, the breast cells are exquisitely sensitive to any kind of genetic insult as they're building themselves. But then the breast is the only organ in the body to actually fully form and over a 10-year period of time from ages 8 to 18 and into your 20s. And that is when what you're eating, drinking, breathing in and using are the actual building blocks. And that's when you're laying down the foundation of your future breast health. So, for example, exposures to DES when you're building your breast tissue in utero produce a higher risk of breast cancer um, in the mothers as well as the, the daughters um, later in life. Uh, bisphenol A can have a uh, permanent effect on the way the breast is formed if you're exposed to it um, in utero or later on during breast development. So that's one unique thing about the breast. Also, the estrogen receptor that runs operations in most breast cells is like a sponge for all of these different chemicals. While it has a monogamous relationship with estrogen, it is ready to respond and is quite promiscuous when it comes to all these other chemicals. And actually, the entire uh, interview is really worth listening to, and I'll put a link to it. And other than the announcer going, this is fresh air, it's actually pretty decent. Um, but, I mean, I just told you that I don't know if the last source I gave you is it can be trusted, but I know who this lady is, and she's fairly well known, and she is an oncologist and has been dealing with this disease her entire professional career, and I take her at her word and her research to be extremely valid. And I find it interesting to note, remember when I was talking about the issue with the rats dying from the GMO corn? One of the little tidbits in there that you might have missed was that, that Monsanto ignored the differences in the response between male and female rats. And basically said that the death rates were higher in females, so that was an aberration, so they threw it out. That was why Monsanto's conclusion was there's nothing to worry about. It didn't cause anywhere near the damage to the systems of a male rat that it did to a female rat. Now, of course, they only ran the test for 90 days. We have no idea what it would have done to males eventually. But, see, this is a problem that I have. This is not just with GMOs. This is with science and medicine in general. Do you know that most pharmaceuticals are not tested on women? Because women are too much of a pain in the ass, basically, because women have things that go on in their bodies that are different than men. And women, if you think about how often does a woman versus a man go to a doctor, uh, the, the numbers are extremely skewed toward females. And I'm not putting women down here. I just want you to understand, this is how science looks at this. So unless I'm testing a, 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 a drug that is designed for women specifically, like birth control or for fertility or for breast enlargement or for the treatment of breast cancer or something like that, then I'm going to try to make my control groups all male, and they succeed in doing this, and I don't know how. Because what they say is, well, you know, if a guy has a headache, he has a headache. If a woman has a headache, it might not have anything to do with the side effect of this drug. 
My statement is that males and females are biologically different. And when we test things, if they're going to be given to females, they should be freaking tested on females. And if you want to know my source on that information, it's Dr. Andrew Weil. And uh, the book you can read where he outlines this completely is called Eight Weeks to Optimum Health. And one of the things he discusses is the overuse of pharmaceuticals and, and making sure you're only taking medications you actually need. And he gives these examples. Now, this guy's a physician, right? He dealt with, with drug trials. So I take him at his word as well. So I just wanted maybe to bring this up. I know we have a lot more women listening to this show than I ever dreamed of when I first created it. I thought this would be a severely male-dominated audience, and I'm very grateful for that. And I also know that all the men out there probably have women in your lives. And this is another reason to be concerned about genetic modified foods. And again, back to the original question from Cam. Is it the GMO or is it the stuff they spray on the GMO plant? And my response, it's probably both, at least in my gut instinct, but does it really matter? If your daughter, your wife, yourself, if you're female, your, 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 your grandmother, your, your, your granddaughter, ever encounters breast cancer, a horrible disease, and it's caused by GMO corn or it's caused by GMO corn sprayed with something it was modified to be sprayed with, do you really care which one was the problem or do you care that it's done at all? And this is how I view the entire thing. And there, there's more to it than this. There's also just, well, there's the inherent evil done by these companies with these crops. They take these crops into uh, the agricultural arena and they, they get farmers basically completely hooked on them. They get them growing them and they get them spraying them with their own chemicals. So Monsanto will sell you the genetically modified corn and they will send you the spray to spray on top of it. And once you start doing that for a while, you get to a point where guess what? Nothing else is going to grow on your field. You understand this? If you spray your field with Roundup four or five times a year, completely saturating the ground, For five years, ten years of doing that, and you build up the toxicity in the soil, because remember, Monsanto used to claim Roundup was biodegradable, and now they have to take that claim out. That eventually you will so saturate the soil with it, that if you say, hey, you know what, I've had enough of this GMO crap, I want to go back to doing things the right way, and you try to switch back to a, a, a soy that's not genetically modified to, 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 to grow in a Roundup, environment, what will happen is, guess what? It won't freaking grow. And legumes in particular, in a soybean, as a bean is a legume, are very, very um, susceptible to herbicides, far more than most other plants. So now the farmer that was growing soy can't even change his mind. Can't he, and who talks about that? Who has even told you that? Where have you heard that before? But tell me, does it make sense to you? That if you saturate a thousand acres of flat land in the middle of, of, of the Midwest, if you saturate it for a decade, five, six springs a year of Roundup, that after ten years, normal food won't grow in that earth anymore? You can't even change your mind and go back? Oh, well, it washes out of the soil eventually. Great, where does it go? Where does it go? Oh, I don't know. Maybe into the places like... I guess if it washes out, it goes wherever the water goes. And where does the water go? Lakes, rivers, streams. So where does most of it end up eventually in the middle of the United States? The Mississippi River. And where does that end up? The Mississippi Delta. Where does that end up? The Gulf of Mexico. 
And no one sprayed this shit at the levels that it's being sprayed at today until we modified the plants so it was acceptable to spray them with it. And that's why I say, are we insane? Are we absolutely insane for doing this to ourselves? And I think we are. I think that anybody that would look at this and go, oh, this is acceptable use of our natural resources, this is acceptable treatment of our food supply, has to be bat crazy nuts. And you'll hear people say, well, if we didn't do this, there'd be people starving to death. Well, first of all, there's people starving to death right now. So don't believe that pile of steaming bullshit. Because that's what it is. It's a steaming pile of bullshit. There's people starving all over the world right now. And there's probably just as many people starving per capita in the world today as there was 25 years ago before we really started doing this shit to our ecosystems and our food supply. Next, there's plenty of land to grow food in these third world nations, but they're not growing food. They're growing mass grains for exportation because they are literally in hock to the International Monetary Fund. Because the IMF, in conjunction with these agricultural giants, go into these third world nations, loan them money at usury interest rates, put them in debt, and then force them to seize land from their citizens, grow wheat and barley, and export it to pay their debts. Sound familiar? It's exactly what we've done to our farmers in America. So in America, can't do that to the whole country, so you do it to the individual farmer. So then you take that concept and you export it into the third world. Great. So these are some additional things that are going on. Before I keep going, let me bring a few more things in for you today. So this has been around a lot. I wanted to find a good, credible source for you of the information, so... Uh, it actually comes originally from the Associated Press. Uh, this particular place I'm citing, it, it is on Bloomberg Businessweek, which would be someone that would generally stick up for a very profitable company like Monsanto. So let's see what they have to say. Experts, contamination from GM alfalfa is certain. Not likely, certain. All right. By Michael J. Crum, Des Moines, Iowa. Agricultural experts say it's inevitable that organic and conventional crops will be contaminated by genetically modified alfalfa recently deregulated by the U.S. government, despite assurances by the agricultural secretary, Tom Vizek, that steps will be taken to prevent that. Visick uh, announced late last month that the government was deregulating alfalfa seeds developed to resist weed killer Roundup. Opponents say the widespread planting of genetically modified alfalfa will result in pollen from those plants spreading to organic and traditional crops, destroying their value. Iowa State University agronomist uh, Jeff Walt says some degree of cross-pollination will happen no matter what. Experts say there's no health risk and alfalfa is used mostly for hay and cattle. But some consumers don't want to eat foods from animals that have consumed genetically modified plants. Huh. I just want to go back to the the, 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 the title. Contamination from GM alfalfa certain. This is what I wanted to talk about with this. We'll, we'll get deeper into what the alfalfa means in a second. One of the ancient principles of agriculture is that if I'm farming in an area or ranching an area or whatever, let's say I'm farming because it's easier to explain this way, and I've got a great big field full of all different kinds of vegetables and grains and I'm doing my farming, but I have no fences. And you move in and you decide that you're going to raise cattle and you have a thousand acres next to me. Well, um, it is not my responsibility to put up a fence around my property where I already was. It is your responsibility because you are bringing the cattle in to fence them out. And this goes back to pre-biblical days. That this has been understood as a common sense logical approach 
to the fact that different people own different land and that, you know, when we look at that, we have to say, well, do you, is it your ox goring mine or my ox goring yours to actually go into the Bible for just a fraction of a second there. I believe that's from Exodus or Leviticus, one or the other. Um, and if it's my ox goring your ox, then it is my responsibility to control my ox. So if you did set up a cattle ranch next to my farm and your cattle went into my farm and damaged my crop, I would be able to sue you and successfully. And I don't think anybody with a reasonable mind in any way, shape, or form would go, that's not fair. I think most people would go, well, that makes perfect sense. Of course you'd be able to sue. You had your crop sitting there. The person brought their cattle in. The cattle went and ate your food. It's their responsibility. GMOs, see... <laughs> Let's say I'm selling organic alfalfa. And I've got people that I sell my hay to that grow cattle. And those cattle are largely grass-fed, but during certain times of the year, there's not enough pasture for them, or there's snowfall, and the cattle can't get enough food, so they need someone to provide them with alfalfa. So they can be considered grass-fed beef still and organically grown and healthy and they don't have any genetic modification in them. They don't have any toxins in them and the person buying the beef knows what they get. So I have this nice little business. I grow organic alfalfa. It takes more work but I sell it for more money than the guy down the road growing the GMO herbicide-ridden fertilized alfalfa. And I have my clientele and he has his clientele. Now, the wind blows, the pollen from the guy up the road's field, comes down and contaminates mine. And eventually, my customers say, I want proof that we're paying a premium for a premium product. So I take my seed that I'm saving, and I take the product, my alfalfa that I'm producing, and I send it off to a laboratory, and I pay for an independent third-party test. Because it's a reasonable request from my customers. And it comes back and it says, you know what? You've got genetically modified alfalfa in your field. You've now ruined my crop, But there's no recourse. I can't go sue Monsanto, and I can't sue Farmer Joe up the road who's growing the genetically modified alfalfa. Now, what can happen, and what has happened to a gentleman named Percy Smizer in Canada, is that Monsanto can now send the seed police, quote-unquote, you know, that's what they actually call them, out to my field, test my alfalfa and say, you're using our patented gene, and sue me, and, and make me pay them, for abuse of their patent. And you want to know why I hate Monsanto. You want to know why I hate this entire industry. Even if it was healthy, do I not have a right to maintain the integrity of what I'm doing? And if that is violated, should I not have recourse to go back and say, you have, your ox scored my ox. You've damaged my, my crop. I can't sell it as what I was selling. My premium is gone. If nothing else, I was selling it for, you know, X dollars a ton, and now I'm selling it for Y dollars a ton because I have to sell it to the same open market. You owe me the difference. And if that was possible, all of this shit would stop because they can't do it. They can't produce this stuff without infecting everything else. So we've got... We got an oncologist saying, hey, this stuff's causing an increase in breast cancer and other female health problems. We've got an unverified source, but it might be credible, that says it's causing fertility and abortions. We've got verified data from Monsanto itself that it's causing kidney and liver failure. Whether it's the crop or what's sprayed on it, it doesn't matter. We've got the fact that it invades organic production. 
We've got a guarantee from experts that it will always invade, that it will always escape, that it will always cross-pollinate. Once it's out, it's out. Most of this crap we can't even stop now. All we can do is stop producing it, stop producing it, and hope that over time, as we keep putting good, fresh, quality genes in, that it trickles itself out down the bottom. And that would be a very long process to get that done now. But again, I want to ask you, how many of these fields where they've been dosing the field with atrazine and Roundup and all these other weird chemicals for a decade or more, how many of those fields will grow anything today if we don't put a resistant variety seed into the ground? Even if we stop spraying. Uh, now let me ask you another question. One of the things that farmers have done for a very long time, especially in American agriculture, is crop rotation, not at any level they should be, but a basic seasonal crop rotation. So I might plant soybeans early in the spring, as soon as they're going to get through without a frost, get them up and going, and then harvest my soybeans. Now, the beauty of that is I didn't have to put nitrogen fertilizer down to get my soybeans to grow. Because my soybeans are a legume, and if I put an inoculated soybean down, inoculated is not GMO, do not be afraid of inoculation. There's bacteria that are in the soil, the rhizomal type bacteria, that works with legumes to produce nitrogen. Actually, the bacteria produces the nitrogen. The bacteria affixes itself to the root system of a legume and pulls nitrogen out of our atmosphere because 78% of our, this, this very hard to get nutrient into our soil, we seem to think it's scarce and we have to create it out of fossil fuels or compost or whatever. When you go and you breathe, 78% of that is nitrogen. So they take the atmospheric nitrogen and they make it bioavailable in the ground because they need it, but they produce it in surplus. So if you pull up a legume, a healthy growing legume, you'll see all these little white balls all over the roots. That's free fertilizer. That's nitrogen. So the farmer doesn't put any nitrogen down at all because usually if you put nitrogen down with a nitrogen fixer, it actually hurts production. So they put the soybeans in the ground, they make nitrogen, they harvest the soy uh, with a machine and it just basically cuts the tops off where all the beans are and it leaves all the green material and the roots in place. Then they go through the field and plow it in. So now they stir it into the ground and they add some nitrogen and then they plant a late season crop uh, like a wheat or a barley or something like that to grow through the winter. And then they get two crops out of that field. And if they keep in the right environment, maybe they even get three. But they reduce the requirement for nitrogen fertilizer to nothing when they're growing the legume. And because the legume leaves nitrogen behind after harvest, they reduce the amount they have to use for the second or third crop. Except, except... <laughs> Now the soybeans that are Roundup ready are failing to produce nitrogen. And I can tell you, my this is, this is uh, if I was in the science community, they would call this hackery, right? I'm being a hack here. But my instinct would tell, tell me this. For this process to happen, there have to be natural bacteria in the soil for this to occur. The legume can't do it without the bacteria. It's a symbiotic relationship. The two must work together. All right? You're putting something on the soil that is an herbicide that has a detrimental effect on life forms. It's probably killing off the bacterium that usually work with the beans. So now the, 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 the farmer who's supposedly saving money and increasing production and using less resources has to put nitrogen fertilizer down with the soy. Of course, the soy doesn't really like it, so now we have to 
find the soy variety that can handle being nitrified artificially. And now we're using more fertilizer. Now, since we're putting more fertilizer down than ever before, more of that fertilizer is going into the runoff system, going into the Mississippi River, and going down and increasing the dead zone, and that's what they actually call it in the Mississippi Delta. And there's this little zone where basically it destroys everything, and it's really small in the winter, and by summer it's really big, and it expands and contracts, and it's now getting less small and more big every time that happens. And it's a direct result of fertilizer. And then we spray the crap on top of it. <laughs> Folks, this is not just me being paranoid, right? This is not just me being upset because I don't like what the company's doing. This is a real freaking problem. And it's a multi-dimensional hydra of problems. I've got a couple more that I wanted to read to you here at the end that I think you need to hear. Because it's going to go beyond the food supply. And you're going to start to understand how it all meshes together and how dangerous this uh, Pandora's box we've opened is now. First, I'm going to read a brief thing to you from Environmental Commons, mainly because it's going to tell you what something called bent grass really is and give you a dire prediction. And then, then I'm going to read what has actually happened. All right. Um, fact sheet on Monsanto's and Scott's Roundup Ready Creeping Bent Grass. Based on potential environmental effects associated with deregulation and commercialization of Roundup Ready, TM, trademarked Roundup Ready. Uh, where have we heard trademark before? Anyway, go, I don't want to go off on that. Creeping bent grass, the USDA is drafting the first ever environmental impact study for genetically modified organisms, USDA scoping document at the Federal Register. There's a link there. You can look at that if you want to. Creeping bent grass is used in many golf courses across the U.S., Uh, Roundup Ready Creeping Bent Grass is being modified to resist the herbicide Roundup and is the first wind-pollinated, perennial, highly outcrossing GMO crop developed for commercial use. I don't find that to be true. I guess they mean because agriculture isn't commercial, I guess is what they mean. Because uh, what is a what is a wind-pollinated, a perennial? Ah, okay, they got me. I was gonna say corn, soy, whatever. So maybe it is the first. Well, what about what about alfalfa? Maybe this letter predated the, the approval of alfalfa. I don't know. Uh, first, wind pollinated, highly outcrossing GMO crop developed for commercial use. Why is perennial an issue? It comes back every year on its own. But what about canola? Canola is not actually wind pollinated, but it is perennial. It does come back because it reseeds itself very, very, very efficiently. So, maybe they got me on the technicality there. Uh, three, a recent government study showed that pollen from the modified creeping bent grass can travel 13 miles. Huh. That's pretty far. That seems like it could get out of where you wanted it. Creeping bent grass is an outcrossing species that is incompatible with at least a dozen other wild species in the United States. Deregulating this product will allow frequent and recurrent gene flow between modified and wild species. Four, if Roundup Ready creeping bent grass is commercially successful and widely adopted in the United States, the transgenes will be naturally introduced into related species. It's grass. Are you getting that, folks? It's grass. It will be introduced into all the grass. <laughs> introducing the six, introducing the transgenes into related grassy species is like causing a super weeds or resistant weeds that can withstand overspray of Roundup herbicide. So now a lot of the grasses out there that this stuff will cross with that we consider to be a weed won't respond to the Roundup. We'll need a more detrimental for, uh, herbicide, I guess. 
Seven, the creation of super weeds means we need to use bigger quantities of weed killers, not less. Eight, deregulation of Roundup creeping bentgrass will prove to be a huge problem for municipalities, counties, and other regions that have prohibited the planting of genetically modified organisms. So this is, oh, 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 oh I, I just, I'm, I'm laying down on the job here, folks. This was written in April 2005. April 2005 this was written. At least that's what it looks like. This is not a very nice website here, but it was what I could find kind of predating all this. Now I'm going to read to you from a credible news source, the Argus Observer. And this is an article dated Sunday, February 27th, 2011. In other words, this article's dated yesterday. Ontario. Genetically modified bent grass continues to spread along the waterways in Mohawk County. But it's not a problem except it's gone far beyond where it's supposed to be. Having escaped from a field, the GMO bent grass has spread to canals and ditches, uh, and drain ditches because it grows best where there's a lot of water. According to Dave Bunker, a local applicator who is involved in identifying the spread and efforts to control the bent grass. It's in every single drain ditch, Bunker said. Bunker was updating Malher County Weed Board at its meeting Thursday. Bunker said only one chemical has been approved for treating the grass and it cannot be used around water. I just, I'm going to back up. I'm going to back up. <laughs> Having escaped from the field, the bent grass has spread to canals and drain ditches because it grows best where there's a lot of water. According to David Bunker, a local, local applicator who is involved in identifying the spread of the efforts to control the grass. It's in every single drain ditch, Bunker said. <laughs> Bunker said only one chemical has been approved for treating the grass and it can't be used around water. Haven't we seen this movie? Again, right? Uh, he will be spraying in March, but only has about a five-day window, as there will be 21 days between the application of this pesticide and the arrival of water. So apparently everything's dry there, and if you hit this five-day window, there's enough time for this chemical, supposedly, that's so strong it'll kill something that resists Roundup to be out of the way before the water gets there. Back to the thing. Water could enter the local canals any time after April 1. Some canals and drain ditches have running water all year long, so there will be no spraying those locations with the approved chemical. <laughs> remember I said to remember a word? The glyphosate-tolerant keep creeping bent grass, glyphosate, remember that? I said remember that word? Uh, which apparently came from trial sites near Parma, will only be eliminated if a pesticide is approved for use in and around the water, Bunker said. The Oregon Department of Agriculture is looking for a chemical that can be used to kill the grass and can be used around water. So, we got to kill this. The only thing that will kill it, we can't use it near water. <laughs> you only laugh because we're doing this to ourselves, and if you don't, you're going to snap a, a gasket in your head. Most of GMO bent grass is found between Nysa and the Malhar River, east of uh, Malhar Siphon. Uh, but it has been found as far south as the Oe Junction, as far north as the Malhar River, west, and I don't know where any of that stuff is, so I'm going to skip the rest of this. Because it needs a lot of water, GMO bandgrass has not been found in fields and is not a range problem. It is not a problem for the local economy, according to officials, but its bright green color will be noticed. It's not a problem for the local economy, it's just really green. Uh, do we need to start giving people an IQ test before they can serve in government? Do we need to make sure your IQ is over 75? Okay, we have a, a disease or a herbicidal resistant 
uh, invasive species running rampant everywhere we have water. We can't spray it with anything that'll kill it because we can't use that stuff around water. But it's not a problem for the local economy, according to officials. But its bright green color will be noticed. I, 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 ah! The announcement of its existence in a local area came out last year. Some officials believe grass has been spreading much longer than that. I would believe it too. And I bet you if they kill it all, it's all back next year. Even if they get their little dry window to do it, it's out. It's going to be out. Now, the bigger problem. What's the bigger problem? Uh, bent grass. You can use it on golf courses. Well, everywhere they use it is going to do the same thing. They like to have these things called creeks and lakes around golf courses, and that helps give it a little pathway out where it can go. And then it starts cross-pollinating with our native uh, plants, and we've got this gene that's not supposed to be there going everywhere. And the bent grass might cross with one grass species, and that grass species may be able to then cross-pollinate that gene off to a, a true weed. We don't really know yet. But the bigger problem even than that, we're going to take all the golf courses in America, And, and trust me, they'll do it. They're going to plant this beautifully dark green bent grass that the, you know, the freaking officials in Oregon apparently are too stupid to understand the problem, but they know it's bright green. Well, that's great for a golf course. Plant this crap, and then they can just spray the entire golf courses with Roundup. Just spray the greens with Roundup. Isn't that great? That way there won't be one of those pesky pieces of clover getting in the way when you're trying to make that, that chip onto the fairway. In the rough. Isn't that great? Isn't that worth screwing up our entire biological ecosystem, our entire life web? Isn't that worth it just so that when you're chipping out of the, out of the rough, back up onto the fairway, there's no clover in your way? That it's just bent grass? Are we not insane? Have we not lost our freaking minds? I don't want to be like totally a downer at the end of today's show. So I want to tell you what's in store for you tomorrow. A lot of this stuff we can't fix. The alfalfa scares the hell out of me, probably more than anything else, because of something called bioaccumulation. And what I mean by that is, if I eat the alfalfa with the atrazine or Roundup or whatever it is in it, it's bad. If cattle are eating it and bioaccumulating it before I eat it, I end up with more, not less. That's why you get less mercury if you eat a little fish that feeds on plankton than a big fish that feeds on a smaller fish that feeds on the tiny fish that feeds on the plankton. Because it bioaccumulates all the way up what's called the trophic level. So the, the, the alfalfa scares me uh, beyond words. The alfalfa and the bent grass together seem to now be able to spread this gene everywhere, uh, as far as I'm concerned. It's almost like now, now we're just, we're just plain being stupid even if we, even if we believe these people that are doing this the right way to do it. So, But you know me, I'm big on solutions. So this is one reason, only one reason I've been saying, buy local, buy organic, buy from known sources, grow your own food, save your own seed, trade seed with your neighbors. So tomorrow's show, I'm going to tell you what you can do about this. I'm going to tell you how you can take some levels and some steps to insulate yourself at some degree from this stuff. And to understand that, I guess the only good thing out of all of this is Cam's original question. The dangers may be more from the chemicals than the genes themselves. And every time that gene outcrosses, its potential impact decreases. You know, it starts to, 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 uh, to, 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 to be outcrossed on its own. And if we take our pastures and we don't spray them with Roundup, the Roundup-ready gene doesn't really give the outcrossed 
crop much of an advantage. And I'm not saying it's good, I'm not saying it's okay, but I am saying there are things we can do. Tomorrow's show, we're going to focus on focusing on the seed. The seed that produces our food. And how that seed is treated from the time that it's saved and carried over to the next harvest, planted in the ground, cared for as a plant, and harvested again. We're going to talk about personal seed banks. We're going to talk about commercially available seed banks. And we're going to talk about setting up seed exchanges. We're going to talk about the places it's already available to do that. We're going to talk about getting smarter with your seed exchanging, though. And doing things like working with local neighbors and things like that as well. So you develop more and more you know, locally adapted strains. So that if you and a neighbor are actually working with the same tomato, but you're five miles apart, swapping some of those seeds are going to increase the genetic diversity and still have the inherent uh, you know, local adaptation in place. We're going to talk about all kinds of things like that because a lot of what I told you about today, there's not a hell of a lot you can do about it. I'm going to tell you what you can do tomorrow. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Nobody up there cares, they're living for